Hello, everyone, and welcome to Next Off, a Victory Briefs podcast. I'm Lauren So, still in Oklahoma, joined by Chris Tice, who is still in Boston, and Jacob Nails, who is also still in Louisiana. Um, how are you all this week? Hunky-dory. Yeah, pretty good. I'm, I've lost track of how many weeks I've been locked in isolation. I think it's like nine, ten, I, but honestly, I can't keep track. That sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't have much to add to that. So sad. All right, we are a podcast discussing all things Circuit Lincoln Douglas debate. We publish new episodes every other week. This is our third episode where we'll be having an informal discussion about our thoughts about the ETOC. Before we discuss that topic, we just wanted to remind our listeners that we have a Google form linked in the description below where you can submit feedback or suggestions for future topics. Finally, thanks to the Victory Briefs Institute for sponsoring this podcast. Victory Briefs is a summer debate institute and publisher of debate materials, which you can learn more about at victorybriefs.com. All right, we'll discuss our thoughts on the eSports TOC after this break. All right, everyone, welcome back. So we're going to discuss our thoughts and like our review about the Tournament of Champions, which recently just happened last week online. Um, and we wanted to divide this up into two kind of categories to discuss. First, our thoughts on the online nature of the tournament. Um, and then also we can have uh, a discussion at the end about some of our thoughts about the way the topic itself has played out and some of the debates played out. Um, so starting with a discussion of the tournament and the online format itself, I just want to start with a kind of broad question, which is like, uh, given a lot of the hesitation and the skepticism surrounding the online nature of this tournament, um, how do you think the tournament played out? Like, did you all think it was good or bad? Um, what were your thoughts about it? I, I thought it went pretty well uh, overall, at least on the logis- logistics side of the tournament. It ran pretty smoothly. There were very limited technical problems from what I could tell, at least in the rounds I judged or my students participated in. Maybe one time there was a connection issue and it was quickly resolved. The tech time solution seemed to be pretty good. A lot of the worst case scenarios didn't seem to uh, materialize. So overall, I think about as good as could be expected. I actually did hear of a few technical issues. Um, I was observing a round that one of the other uh, Harker coaches was watching and the affirmative debater just like dropped out of the call for about Mm. half of the NR. and oh. just like did not hear it. Uh, and they, they didn't realize until the end. So the activator tried to get back in the call and eventually managed uh, successfully to get back in and ended up winning this debate anyways, because unfortunately the negative had just dropped a theory argument. Um, and the only question that the affirmative asked before jumping into his 2AR was like, did you have any other arguments against theory at the, at the end of your NR? And then I said, no. And so the app was like, all right, this is going to be the continued nice. theory shell. Um, I think uh, other than that, I don't think I heard of any other serious technical issues that delayed the tournament. I was going to say, I have heard tell of some people dropping like in the 2AR. In fact, I believe at least one Elam, the AF had to rejoin and then just restart mid-speech um, oh, wow. in the 2AR. So I don't, I don't think it was the water tech problems, but I, I will say that it does seem like it was relatively smooth. Um, at least, you know, comparing the various predictions, I think the more optimistic predictions seem to have been right about like the ability of the online platform to host debates in a, you know, a reasonably smooth manner. Yeah, I, I agree. So even before the TOC, there had been a lot of online tournaments, uh, you know, informally run, formally run. Um, as I mentioned in the previous podcast, I've even been helped running some of them in China. And there haven't been very many tech issues, at least none that are easily uh, or not easily solvable by the students. And I think even going into the TOC, we should have been pretty optimistic about the outcomes. And I think the I think at the end of this tournament, I'm much more solidified in my stance that online tournaments, at least their format, doesn't really present any strong technical challenges that can't be overcome with good planning and a little bit of uh, training for teachers, uh, students, and judges. Um, I think probably the main thing was like a lot of students didn't know how to set up their microphones and yeah. uh, like kept on having the problem where they didn't use headphones. And so they'd get that feedback where the audio would come out of the speakers, but then get picked up by the microphone and stuff like that. I feel like once you solved all of those things, not too big of a deal, it, overall pretty smooth. So one point for and one point against. So one point uh, in favor of thinking that future tournaments run as well as or better than the TOC is that the TOC is, I think, most people's very first run with the debating online format, Zoom as a platform, et cetera. 
And so a lot of the problems of like figuring out how to join, how to deal with flips, how to use your microphone, avoiding drops and stuff like that, I imagine will happen less frequently in the future as more people become acclimated to it and just more experience with the, the platform and so on. Uh, one point against is the TOC had a lot more wiggle room than I imagine the average tournament will be if this continues to be a trend because it was spread out over four days this year instead of three. It was you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, which if regular season tournaments during the school year, say 2021 season and onwards happen, they won't be able to do because kids won't be able to debate like middle school Friday, middle school Monday and so forth. And so I think part of what helped the TOC smooth out a lot of the potential tech problems was just there's a lot of built-in lag time between rounds. So like, I you know there was at least one like flip issue in elims that caused them to delay the tournament a bunch, but they had a bunch of built-in time. So they're just like, oh, well, let's just restart from a, a later, uh, what do you want to call it? They, these lag times are advantage, point being to resolve the issue, um, which you know, tournament entire schedule might not be able to. So one thing to bear in mind is part of what I think made the TOC able to run so smoothly is all that lag time means one or two rounds being held up by tech doesn't really hold the tournament. Whereas the tournament with a tighter schedule won't have that luxury. Yeah, um, I agree with that. Um, although I will say a lot of tournaments are transitioning to the four day format where they do it Thursday afternoon, Friday afternoon, Saturday, Sunday. In fact, I'm currently judging at a state tournament in Wyoming, which has chosen to use that schedule, which means that students who are still in school can actually uh, compete because that won't interfere with their high school classes. And uh, with the additional benefit of um, opening it up to more judges who otherwise might be less free uh, during like a Friday afternoon instead, if the rounds are only just Friday evening. So I actually think there's a good reason to suspect that a lot of tournaments in the future will move towards four day schedules if necessary to accommodate larger pools of competitors. That's interesting. I hadn't heard about that. That makes sense. It would only be really viable with an online tournament or a local tournament though, right? Right. I would imagine it'd be pretty difficult to convince schools to move to a four-day, like, in-person tournament starting, like, right. Thursday afternoon and then, like, potentially even finishing up, like, Monday. Uh, probably not going to work. But for online formats, I, I suspect that that is going mm-hmm. to be a viable model uh, to build in that lag time for tech issues and other problems that students face. And, and, and in reality, I actually think if that schedule is widely adopted, it would be better for a lot of students because this would force them to miss less school, you know, presuming that a lot of school is still done online. But even if not, like, I still think it's better because the current model has students usually miss all Friday class and then some of Monday class, maybe even more. Whereas if you stretch out the prelims to be across more days, but only in the evenings, I think it would prevent students from missing as much class. Another related benefit that I noticed with the ETOC, and this might not be true of every tournament going forward, but it seems like it was for the TOC at least, is sleep. I feel like Rounds felt like, I mean, they, they did, you know, factually start later and earlier given the TOC schedule, but also on top of just like the literal round scheduling, there's not that period of, you know, wake up, congregate in the hotel room, load everyone into the bus, then unpack, go to your rooms, etc. When you're packing up at night, you don't have to wait for everyone's round to finish, get on the bus, head back to the hotel, go through all those motions. There's none of that aspect of checking into hotels, checking out all the travel time. And I think a lot of that time seems to have come out of debaters just like amount of sleep that they get during tournaments. And so I, I feel like it was much easier to get just a reasonable amount of sleep and still have time to prep, still have time to you know, get ready in the morning and so forth and not be too stressed or on the clock. And so I think that's another potential benefit of these online tournaments is it seemed much smoother in terms of having a full day of debating and then still having time to sleep at night which is probably good for students health i I agree that like in theory that would be true but like as we all know students who want to stay up will stay up like if not prepping then doing other things hanging out with friends whatever and i know for a fact that it's not like you were going to sleep at a particularly early time because you know we were up chatting uh several nights during the tournament i was also not judging Uh, that's fair i will say on a kind of uh Adjacent note, I actually feel like I ate less during this tournament, despite the fact that there was a kitchen like five steps away from me. Um, And I just felt like I had to be tethered to the Slack or Hangouts calls for my students. More often, like I feel like at a physical tournament, I get a more leeway to just like leave for an hour to go get lunch. Whereas here, like Mm -hmm. I felt like if I wasn't in the call with them, like talking to them about how the rounds went or et cetera, et cetera, like then I wasn't doing my job. And so this might actually like anchor me more to the team than previous, uh, than like in-person tournaments, but that might just be me. I feel like that problem exists mostly in your mind. Yeah, I was going to say one really small thing that I liked, and I think maybe should even be adopted by in-person terms going forward, is the way they did the flip. There were some technical issues, but I liked 
uh, tab just doing the flip for everybody and giving the person who won the ability to pick sides. We don't have to chase people down, find room to meet, no shenanigans with the flip. Computer just does it, and the winning team gets to pick their side. I think it was a way better system. That actually makes me wonder why they don't just put that on the pairings. Like, disclose elims, and then it just says, like, instead yeah. of half a neg columns, it's just flip winner, flip loser. And then the flip loser just has to go ask the flip winner what they chose, the nearest opportunity. I will say some of the coaches I've, I've talked to actually like the flip because they like the strategy of it. I really can't say I understand where they're coming from, but strategy of what I, again, I <laughs> honestly could not say, yeah, like there's like an intimidation factor to it. There's like oh, something on. about uh, psyching people out, trying to like force them into like reading new positions that they otherwise didn't want to break stuff like that. I, again, I do not understand where they're coming from, but I, oh, was, I you mean this sort of like, Tell them what F you would hypothetically beforehand, what strategy can come right, from that. Before, right, like that in-person element of just like intimidating people, like forcing people to think like which app they're going to read, like, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Sure, that, w that wouldn't exist with my proposal of just disclosing on the website in advance. But that still exists with the version that the TOC did, which was mm -hmm. sort of digitally flipped, because there's still the, the prior to the flip discussion that happens. Yes. I will say I don't, I don't believe that position. I, I, I'm with you all. The, the flip seems unnecessary, and I like that. I, I thought you software. were referring to the strategy of like, Flipping the coin itself. Which <laughs> yeah, just like, uh, like weighted coins, um, you know, trick although, coins. Although, although my, my uh, head coach when I was in high school always referenced some random study that she had found that said that tails was more likely on a hard surface and heads on a carpeted surface. I don't believe that. Pound that into everybody. Tails on tile. Tails on tile. Not, not <laughs> only do I believe that those cards exist, I know they exist because Jacob has carded them in a debate <laughs> where some uh, one of his opponents proposed that they settle the run by coin flip and jacob mm. pointed out that was in fact unfair because of the slight bias towards uh different uh coin headings based on the surface well, that it lands on my evidence did not speak to the surfaces i've never heard of the, the tile versus carpet distinction oh yeah this might be getting a little bit far afield but i i've long thought and i think it might have been um tice you suggested this a while back just side equalization in elim this makes a yeah. lot more sense to me than just pure flips for every elim well so for those of us who don't know what is side equalization so the basic idea is and it, it makes a lot of sense in LD, at least. I'm, I'm less convinced it would be necessary in other events like PF or policy, but I could see it being justified there as well. If you assume that one side's better, right, like being negative, then you want to make sure that someone can't, say, win a tournament, but it's like negating every ULM and then getting a big advantage there. So what you do is if you are both going into the ELIM, let's say the first ELIM, without any sort of prior information about who won more fewer flips, then you flip for sides. But then let's say you're going into an ELIM, like the, the second ELIM, like octafinals, and one person has been affirmative and one person has been negative in double octafinals. Then tab room will assign sides, kind of like if you, if you just hit before in prelims, you would get the opposite side. And so you end up after octafinals, whoever wins is debated AF once and neg once. And then if you hit someone else who's done AF once and neg once, then you could flip again because you had both had affirmed and negated an equal number of times in ELIMs. But if someone had like negated twice, then they're you know, stuck being affirmative. And it basically, like, it, it doesn't perfect anything, but it minimizes the ability to have like streaks of like all affirming or all negating, which seems consistent with our general beliefs about how debate should work, given that we try to minimize that in preliminary round. Um, do you think it would make sense um, in a world where we adopted some flip system, like we just talked about, that is done centrally through Tabroom, to do not a side equalization, but like basically a flip equalization? Because we can maybe assume that debaters have, Ooh. you know, on certain topics or the advantages are different, or, you know, maybe a debater, uh, although there's a neck bias, like has an ass that they really feel good about, that they want to break. And so it's not the side we're equalizing, but who got to choose. So basically, if one person has won the flip and the other person has lost the flip, then the person who wins the flip is whoever lost the flip last time. That's the idea? Yeah. Yeah. And if they both won the flip mm. or both lost the flip, then it's uh, random again. Uh, in general, I feel like uh, it's probably gonna, those two are probably going to overlap a lot in LD because you know mm -hmm. the, the negative is winning most of the time, and so that usually should be the right answer. Uh, I could see an argument for either version. I think the version you're proposing, a flip equalization, probably does a little bit better at maintaining sort of flip unfairness in elims or minimizing flip unfairness in elims by making sure that no one doesn't like win the flip too many times. The advantage of side equalization is, I think, more along the lines of the advantage of having to go afneg, afneg in prelims, which is the idea of just like a good debater should be one who is able to both affirm and negate the resolution. 
And so it makes sure that in elims as well, you also have to win your elims by both affirming and negating, implying somewhat counterfactually that most debates are resolved on the resolution. <laughs> yeah, well, speaking about that, um, <laughs> I wanted to say this for later, but I, I guess as good a time as any to discuss. Um, I thought there were like a few interesting things about the TOC that stood out this year, not necessarily relative to other years. Actually, this was the first time I went to the TOC and, you know, <laughs> went is a strong term given that I never left my bed. But one of the things that I noticed it is it seemed to me that more elims than ever this year were resolved on non-topic related arguments. I, I could say that last year on the military aid topic, like a, there were a good portion of elims that were decided on just like topic arguments for and against, like aid good, aid bad. I could not say the same about this year's elims. I, I would be surprised if the number cracked like three debates that were centered, like where the 2NR and the 2AR were centered around topic arguments. I mean, first of all, is, is like, was that kind of the feel that you all got observing rounds? So quick question. Are we... For, to meet your threshold, does it merely have to be that the judges are deciding on an issue that is sort of technically like resolution yes, no, in a trivial sense? Or is it more of a sort of substantively the rounds hinged on core topic questions? Like, for example, on the military uh, topic last day, remember like a round that came down, you know, strictly speaking to whether the topic was good or bad, it was resolved on whether like Jesus would like demining, stuff like that. Kind of, sort of, like that, that one is technically a topic question not really a core of the literature question. Um, right, so I, I agree this distinction is fuzzy and I don't really have any attempt to impose a particular bright line. So for example, like a lot of 1AR theory debates are technically resolved in the topic because when you vote against the affirmative and they don't win their 1AR theory argument, technically you're voting negative on one of the topic arguments that they presented. But I wouldn't consider that to ultimately to be a debate mm -hmm. about the topic right. um, by the end. I just kind of think, you know, you watch that round, do you think it was decided about something core of the topic related? Arbitrary, sure, but you know it when you see it. It is not clear to me then that, that like, I, I agree with your assessment about this year, that there weren't a whole lot of rounds, at least of the ones that I know of. I can't say I, I know how, how every Elam round went down. They were resolved on, you know, core topic of questions. But it's not clear to me that that trend has decreased over time, so, uh, so much as sort of remained pretty consistently low for quite a while now. Like, I'm just recalling, like, my senior year, 2012, I feel like almost every Elam was some theory debate or other. And I feel like, to the extent that like theory has declined, like random like critique stuff has taken its place or, you know, very narrow, like, you know, plan issues, um, not like a, a rise in just like core substantive stuff. Right. I think one thing that's kind of related to the decline in topic related debates in Elims of the TOC is just the overall portion of the pool that uh, is generally classified as like more policy, just they just didn't attend this tournament. Um, and not only did like they not introduce their arguments in the pool, and so that just means that they're less of them to break into elims, but also they didn't bring those judges that they normally associate with that school. And so the amount of judges that are particularly favorable for core topic policy style arguments is also a lot lower. And I, I think that probably explains a good portion of it. Um, but also at the same time, like there, there, it, it's not like there weren't debaters that were primarily topic focused in elims of this TOC. And I just can't understand the strategic reasoning for why, like, if you're AP, you wanted this debate to be settled about something other than are nukes good or bad? Like, it, it, why did so many AFs decide to, like, introduce 1AR theory and collapse to it in the 2AR? Like, that's a clearly, in my mind, much more close debate than nukes good or bad. For me, the AF is probably going to win nukes good, bad debate, like, 70% of the time, whereas, like, most 1AR theory arguments, other than conditionality, seem, like, absolutely nonsense to me. And I just don't know why debaters want to go that route. It, it seems to me like, I think we talked about this a little bit last time, there was a fundamental lack of confidence in people's positions, especially on the AF. As the topic went on, people were a little worried, too worried about people having answers, like didn't do the work to frontline, instead they would go to theory. Or in ELIMS, uh, I saw a lot of people breaking new AFs that weren't really very core to the topic. So instead of using, uh, you know, breaking a new AF that was actually about the topic, they would go something more fringe, and that would just lead to a debate that wasn't really about the topic from the neg. Yeah, I'd, I'd be interested to see if breaking new apps actually correlates to winning more rounds. I'm not, I'm not sure if it does in LD, but it does seem like a lot of people believe that it does. Yeah, I think there's a strong belief that it does. I think it probably depends a lot on the topic and what the app is. Uh, I remember the resource extraction topic, it seemed like every ELIM at COC, every team broke a new app and the AFs won overwhelmingly. Now that's small sample size, but it seemed true on that topic, which makes sense given how big it was and how varied the AFs could be. 
on this topic, there didn't seem to be a huge advantage. So many of the advantage areas either overlapped or people would break AFs that were just sort of, I don't know, not very good, but trying to surprise people. And that just didn't go very well. Like, it seems to me there is a good strategy element to breaking a new AF, right? Uh, like, it forces the neg off their pre-existing blocks. So, like, at least for prep time before the round, like, it really confuses the negative. But, like, AFs have to know that if negs aren't going to be able to read specific blocks, they're just going to default to generics if the negs have prepped a decent amount. And that tends to be, like, a critique or theory. And that just nullifies any prep advantage you would get from breaking a new AF because then it just defaults to, like, did you do the theory drills or do you have your, like, back files updated on Ks? I don't really understand why you'd want to force it there. Like, I'd much rather have the Indopack debate uh, as the AF, where you can be confident in your 1AR front lines that you've worked on for months up to the tournament, and the substantive arguments for like why Indopack disarming is good, as opposed to like having the same generic theory debate where the neg is clearly going to be at least equally advantaged as you, just because they've probably done the theory drills and have the theory back files. My impression, I didn't, I didn't see any Indopack debates at the TSC. I'm sure a few of them happen. I think I heard of at least one happening. I, I trust a few. It's, it seems like Indopack went from being one of the most common apps to on the decline. And I, I feel like part of it was probably, it seems like a consensus sort of formed around the legitimacy of the advantage counterplans that seemed to really do a number against that app. And like, I believe the one that I even heard of was resolved on just like counterplan disad. I would much rather stick with the whole res app through TOC than stick with Indopack if I had to pick like a core app that I was going to keep reading. Well, yeah, but for reasons that we mentioned last time, probably that can happen, sadly. Like, so for example, I judged uh, doubles and there was an Indopack app. Uh, the neg strategy was like counterplan DA contency. And I thought this was fairly close debate, but then the 2AR decides to collapse all in on a 1AR theory argument about how the neg didn't have a unified solvency advocate, which, um, you know, as evidence from the last <laughs> one, I could not. much? Yeah, like I, I could not possibly have <laughs> much sympathy for this. Um, I remember the 2AR framing issue which was like, the neg is too grandstanding on theory. And I was like, this links way more to you, AF. Like, you just, like, have no, no position to complain about this. You have read an AF that has no unified solvency advocate. And the neg is like, they made, like, a lot of the, the straightforward arguments that were just like, if the AF gets away with utopian fiat, so does the neg. Um, yeah. I thought that was pretty true. Uh, but, like, you know, it, it just seemed like everyone's, in everyone's mind, they were like, 2AR, got to collapse to one theory. Like, the amount of 1AR theory debates I judged at this TOC was greater than probably yeah. the amount of 1AR theory debates I judged prior to the TOC this entire year, and like maybe even the entire second semester of last year as well. Like I just did so many one AR theory debates. Well, to be fair, what tournaments do you judge this year? You're judging like West Coast stuff like Berkeley, right? Right, right. I, th I think part of it might just be that you, you, you've experienced the East Coast. <laughs> I think that's correct. But some of these were West Coast debaters too, uh, uh, but I agree the sample selection bias, like a lot of the West Coast debaters that previously would not go for one air theory were not at this tournament. Um, although I will say one of the things that was interesting this year was the massive resurgence of silly theory arguments, like ones that would go beyond what most people consider reasonable. So solvency advocate might questionably include in there, but like picks, condo, et cetera. And you just had like the, the silly wall of tricks just came back with a force that I had not seen at TOC in a long time. <laughs> There's just like a huge resurgence of like silly spikes, like uh, you have the more substantive, quote-unquote, ones like condo logic and indexicals, but you also have the silly ones that are like, can't contest app spikes, like, must not contest the contention, stuff like stuff like that. Um, I don't know. I just thought it was kind of silly to see so many of them win so many rounds at the TOC this year. I think those arguments have been on the upswing for at least a year or two now, and it's just that the kids who are reading them were much more present at the TOC this year than in years past. Yeah, that seems like the like it but what is the general reason for the resurgence of these arguments like a lot of them died a few years ago because people started figuring out how to beat them is it just because they're like ah oh, people it's it collective memory short people have forgotten how to answer these tricks let's bring them back sort of thing or like i think that's exactly right these kind of things go in waves uh they pop up people are successful with them debaters learn how to beat them they go away that knowledge is lost as new debaters come in and don't have to deal with them someone finds an old backfile or a coach cracks it out again the cycle repeats. It's been going on for a decade, yep. over a decade. Yeah, I remember, for example, there was a period of like, at least a few years where it was basically just like Scarsdale's kids would sit down and just come up with like, what new nonsense of the week can we make up? And then they'd read like, must have a counter solvency advocate saying your own app's a bad idea. And then people would be like, oh, that's dumb. We write out like a block why it's dumb. And then by the time you've done that, they've moved on to like some new thing. My, my favorite one was you only get one response to each AF argument. I I don't think that one's even died. I, I think a lot of these 
have been necromanced back into existence. Um, a related thing, I think, that explains the most recent uh, slew of theory arguments is you see a lot that are hyper generic, right? Like the, the amount of debates that come down to in some way, like, is the app allowed to make theory arguments at all? Is just mind boggling to me. <laughs> or just stuff like, just don't evaluate the 2AR on theory. Like claims that just seem manifestly ridiculous. But I think the value of those things is just, they apply to like every theory debate and basically every round. Right? There's not a whole lot of value in prepping out some like very particular complaint when you can just prep no theory ever or just like always, like the neg just always win theory, the app always wins theory. And I think a lot of the spikes lately have been looking a lot like that. And I think the value to those is just they sort of subsume everything. Right? Like the yeah. same sort of reason you'd read like a very general underview rather than a preemptive very particular thing so that it applies no matter what the negative says. You just come up with a bunch of like bad theory spikes that apply to like all theory debate. And they're, they're more reliably useful. And if you, because a lot of the judges I think that are most receptive to the argument, so the type of judges were just like the, the, the plausibility of the claim bears almost no relationship to the quality of the argument or they're likely to vote on it. And so if you know that you're going to win it in a purely technical manner of just like putting more responses on that section of the flow, you might as well make a grandiose claim that is likely to get you a whole lot if you win it. Like the AF just literally may not make theory arguments because you're going to win that or lose that on a purely technical like time allocation issue. And so you're just going to kind of claim as much as you can. These side delineated theory arguments like paradigm issue, framing issue arguments are my least favorite innovation. I think in the last few years, just absolutely they're up there. Mind boggling how bad these arguments are on average. And no one, no one believes them. Some of the ones like, just like don't evaluate two AR arguments on theory really push the limits of just like what I'm willing to say, like I could conceivably vote on as a judge. Like at some point you're just sort of violating speech time, but like denying your opponent's speeches. I, I can't, I can't tell if like, AF never gets one of your theory is worse than like don't evaluate the two year on theory. Um, Definitely worse, no question. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, that actually makes me think of, I don't even understand what debaters are expecting to happen if they say, like I've, I've heard people say like evaluate theory after the one NC or after some absurdly early point in the debate. Like if you read a theory shell in the one NC and you tell me not to evaluate any further response from the one air and the two air, it seems that the debater thinks that I'm just gonna like auto vote for it. Like, aha, I've said a new thing in the final relevant speech. Therefore, it's true. If you're denying your opponent the chance to respond to it, then you're sort of just leaving it up to me to gut check it. Like the only way I'm going to vote on like some bad theory argument is if you just like present the argument, execute it, and the opponent like drops or mishandles it. And if you say my opponent is not allowed to respond, don't evaluate the responses, you sort of foreclose the ability for them to mishandle it and left it up to me to just be like, this argument's asinine, I'm not voting for it. Well, and, and even worse is like when people like don't just make the argument in the NC, but then they go for it. Like, I get that you can like stick it in the NC where you're just like, don't evaluate one error theory. And you're just like hoping the AF drops it and you're like, fine, technical concession, whatever. But then like the AF says three words against it, which is, yes, we do, which to me constitutes a sufficient response against no one error theory. And then the NR will collapse for like a minute on this argument and we'll be like, no, you don't get one error theory. And then we'll go through all of the reasons why. And at the end of the debate, I'm just like, I, this argument should only be included if the AF drops it. Like, I just could not imagine why you would think it's a good idea to brute force a minute of your 2NR on no one error theory, when as long as the AF says the words, yes, we do, I'm probably going to lean AF on that question. I don't understand where the strategic thought went. Like, I get introducing it, although I think it's silly. I don't get going for it. I guess because most, a lot of judges wouldn't evaluate it like you, Lawrence. I mean, one, that's like sad, but two, I, I don't even think I'm particularly unique in this. Like I, I would say amongst West Coast judges, I'm probably more favorable to silly theory arguments than average, especially since like I uh, used to judge a lot in Texas uh, and Texas has its own brand and flavor of theory arguments. Uh, but just like also most judges, even in their paradigms, like even more East Coast leaning judges seem to have mentions of like, most of these arguments are not really full arguments. And so they're heavily going to err against it. Like I, even like in East Coast debates, I can't say that when the neg is gone for no one AR theory, that they've ever won more than like 30% of those rounds, even with favorable East Coast judges it, like in the back. I don't have a sense of whether other judges are voting on this or not. I mean, it's possible that this argument is just winning in rounds that I'm not observing because I'm not the judge in those rounds. I, I, I have a theory argument like that, that I want to hear your opinion on. I think it's, so it's clearly one of the worst arguments also. I think it's, I think it's mostly a meme and a joke, but I'm not hundred okay. percent sure. Three times I've judged states theory. Have you seen this? What's the argument? 
debaters must be from X, Y, or Z state. Oh my And then reasons gosh. why this is I've done oh. it on three separate occasions. And it leads me to believe that people are winning debates on this or I'm being like very specifically trolled by a number of students. At like actual regular season tournaments, you've seen this. Yes, I saw it at Harvard. Um, couple, of, yeah, I saw it at the Israel Newman Round Robin, which I guess not a- So that was uh, online, right? Was on, that was an online tournament, yep. Because I had had the impression that the, that period of late February through TOC, where there's a lot of ad hoc, non-official tournaments cropping up, had also seen a plague of like bad theory arguments because apparently if you like leave students to their own devices to have rounds amongst themselves, their favorite thing to do is just make terrible arguments, which I mean, sure, fair enough. I'm more surprised that people are reading it at tournaments like Harvard. What, what, what is the conceivable argument for this? You know, in different rounds, obviously different states were involved, but it's just reading reasons why that state is good, um, like health from that state, Health outweighs everything. It's a prerequisite, that kind of stuff. Like, yeah. So the argument for Texas is like, Texas is good for low-income people. There was once an argument like Rhode Island, because it was like, or Wyoming or whatever. One of the only states that hadn't gotten the COVID-19 outbreak at the time. And they're like, he must be from there because that's that way we know you don't have COVID-19, something like that. The one that really got me was a kid from Alabama reading it. Must be from Alabama. And going for health outweighs. That seems very, (laughs) very (laughs) unlikely to me. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> love alabama but in a lot of ways these are reminding me of very bad disads like you you start with some claim like they're from some state there's some very marginal difference between these two states in hell effects and then you just jump straight to therefore they should lose the round because i guess presumably that very marginally deters one student who's not from alabama from going to one more tournament or something like that and then the issue there is obviously just like the, the whatever the link like the internal link is between marginal health risks between states and losing a ballot in a debate round affecting the number of Alabamans who travel versus non-Alabamans is obviously like so minuscule as to be outweighed by literally anything like having a real debate and these arguments sort of win I think by just the conflation of like minuscule link to terminal impact with no sort of mitigation at the level of your link is too trivial to account for much. So this is probably giving it more credit than it's worth. And I think you're probably right, Jacob. But to me, it seems almost like a satire reductio of competing interpretations, which that's what they're going for. I have a little bit more respect for, but I don't think that's what's happening. Well, so I think there's a problem that isn't particularly recent and has been around in LD for a while. I mean, just sort of theory debate in general, not even that specific to LD, is you get this sort of, unholy combination of paradigm issues that makes theory much more strategic than it should be, which is you introduce the claim that just theory has dropped the debater, uh, which is usually taken to just be all theory has dropped the debater, which seems like an implausible link on its own, right? It's like starting from the assumption like the death penalty can be justified and jumping to therefore all crimes merit the death penalty. So you got that one, which is if you win a theory claim, you drop the debater. Then you introduce competing interpretations and you say, as long as I have any marginal risk that my practice is better than my opponent's practice, then I win the round, right? So the slightest bit of offense counts for winning on theory. So you put those two together. And then third, I think another unrecognized slippage is sort of jumping from like this X practice is better than Y practice to like X would be a better rule to be mandated for debate than Y rule. Yes. Right. And then you put all this together and then the, the incentive becomes find literally anything less than perfect that your opponent did or said or state that they existed in or whatever. And then you have an independent layer once you win the round that precedes the other stuff. It's presumably something you've prepped that they have no prep on, like state health risks and stuff. And then the strategic value obviously tilts in favor of that. And I think a lot of this happens because judges take for granted in a lot of ways a lot of the assumptions even if they're not really warranted or very sort of like poorly explained, like you just sort of say competing interrupts and like a word like arbitrariness. Uh, and then a lot of the other stuff just sort of gets assumed. And then it becomes the onus of the debater defending to proactively challenge those assumptions, in which case, even if the debater doesn't go for it, they've already got you know, the time skew out of it. And it seems that the state's theory is just like the latest manifestation of that sort of very general trend. I, so returning this back to the discussion about then the ETOC specifically, I, I guess a lot of these arguments proliferated 
both because of the betas who chose to attend, uh, but also because of the judges who uh, attended this tournament as well, because uh, judges associated with schools that didn't attend, they, just, they didn't go. And I, I was kind of interested in that question, which is like a lot of students prior to the TOC had complaints or skepticism or what they thought in their mind were good reasons not to go to the TOC. I guess I have two questions here. So one, why don't you think kids went in general? Uh, that's a shorter question. But a more serious one is like, did any of their complaints bear out? Like, was there, do you think after this TOC, there's any good reason for students to continue boycotting these tournaments? Especially since I think um, a lot more online tournaments are going to crop up nowadays. And especially since it's unlikely that there will be a lot of travel in the fall semester. I didn't really see any obvious issues with it. Since the initial backlash, which happened, I don't know, what, a few months ago now, there was a, a pretty clear trend in the direction of more kids having more debates online, hosting tournaments, doing stuff like that. The TOC itself, like we said, it went relatively smooth. And I'm not really seeing what the clear concern is, at least from like the student's perspective of like why you wouldn't want to compete. Yeah, I, I even take it so a little bit, I even take it a little bit further than that which is that earlier we had potentially carved out an exception for local debates in the first episode where we were like, maybe online debates aren't so conducive to traditional stuff. But both yesterday uh, and the day before, as well as today, I am judging online traditional debates. Like I'm judging uh, people who are reading traditional cases, going slow, working on presentation. And honestly, I can't see too much of a downside to it, even from a traditional de debate perspective. Like a lot of them are still emphasizing the things that traditional debate wants to emphasize. So like classical philosophy, they're like talking in, they're like, they have good presentation, their tone's good, their pacing's good. Like I can still pick up on a lot of that. And a lot of that does factor into my decision. I'm, I think post the ETOC, minus the like the coin flip hiccup uh, and like a few dropped connections. I'm actually convinced that e-debate that e is better than my initial assumption going in to the TOC. Like I was, I was concerned there would actually be a lot of issues, but I, I actually am much more optimistic post the TOC. Yeah, I think I agree with that. It beat my expectations. I think still in-person debate better than online debate, online debate better than no debate. So I think the only real good argument you could construct against doing online debates in this weird period we're in is if it will have some sort of long-term negative effect on in-person debate when we come back. You know, there's some people who talk about maybe schools when they realize how much cheaper this is, will not want people, not want teams to compete in person and will force them to only do online tournaments. Maybe it undermines teams in some way. If that is the case sort of in the long term, I could see an argument against, but I don't really see that being very plausible given I think this is going to be a somewhat time-limited thing. Maybe it will exist in some form as a complement, but I don't think most people, most coaches, most debaters think this is ideal. And so I don't think it will trade off in that way. Yeah, I, I don't particularly disagree with anything that's been said so far. The one thing I would add is, I remember back when it was first being discussed, the, the very clear argument for ETOC that I thought was decisive was, however good or bad you think it is, it's still clearly in between the value of no debate and in-person debate. And so given in-person debate is off the table, comparative often suggests ETOC is better than nothing. And so you come at it from the angle of, look, yeah, it, maybe it sucks and it's super non-ideal, but at least it's a little bit better than doing nothing in a weekend that you're probably not doing a whole lot anyway. And that made sense. Uh, that being said, I agree with uh, Lawrence that it, it seems to have exceeded expectations in my mind. I remember I had some reservations about audio quality and stuff, and it seems like that wasn't a huge issue. And so I would say that on the spectrum from no debate to in-person debate, uh, online debate seems much closer to in-person debate than it does to no debate at all. Like it captures at least a majority of the benefit. And so in my mind, even if there were some trade-off where e-debate traded off to some degree with in-person debate, I think that trade-off would have to be pretty substantial before it was an argument against e-debate. Like to the extent that it increases total amount of debate and allows more people to debate who wouldn't have had to debate at all, that jump from no debating to getting to debate at all on online is just much larger in magnitude. So it would even be worth there being like some marginal trade-off with in-person debate if the benefit is total increase in participation and stuff like that. I think that just some non-zero trade-off would not be enough for me to convince that it's a bad idea. Yeah, I, I agree. And especially since like there are just way more tournaments proliferating now uh, in the postseason where there'd usually be a, a relatively large dearth of tournaments. 
now students can compete basically whenever they want like every other day it seems like in the high school ld facebook page there's like someone else posting like about their online mm -hmm. tournament now granted a lot of those tournaments don't seem particularly great i don't really know much about them so i can't comment too heavily but the fact that the opportunity exists seems better than the opportunity not exist i do i do think conflating the toc which i think they did a pretty good job of managing the logistics of creating oversight of all, all those sort of little things i think conflating that with these sort of ad hoc student-run tournaments, some of them happening over Facebook Messenger and stuff, is a little misleading. I don't know what's happening in that world, and it seems a little Wild West to me, and that kind of stuff makes me a little nervous. But I don't think that's the same thing as the ETOC or if in the fall, you know, if Green Hill has to be online because of COVID still. I think that's a fundamentally different thing. Yeah, so one thing I think that will be a challenge in the next, I guess, year or two that is more relevant to the sanctioned tournaments like the TOC and less relevant to the student-run, basically sort of practice debates, is the question of responsibility, like legal responsibility, uh, who's supervising, what, what roles do adults have, getting waivers from parents, uh, permissions, and so forth. Because I imagine that is at least a little bit different when the students are debating online from their rooms, potentially signing up for a tournament from wherever in the country. And I don't think any of it will be insurmountable. I mean, imagine, you know, like the TOC was able to run fine, but it will be new and different. And I guess that's the one last bridge to cross before I think major sanctioned tournaments by schools could get off the ground. And I don't know exactly what that looks like. I imagine uh, there'll be some at least gray area or uh, transitional period where people are trying to iron that out. But I think that'll be the, the next big thing for online to uh, online debate to cross is how to deal with legal issues that arise as a result of online participation that are different from just in person. So I think the biggest challenge that, uh, you know, I'm gonna put aside like the legal forms and stuff. I don't know anything about that. Uh, the biggest question was like supervision of kids in rounds, right? Like there's already a in-person tournament discussion about like, uh, how do you uh, supervise you know, judges, some of who just graduated from high school and are, you know, truthfully not much older than the students and sometimes even younger than the students that they're judging. Um, you know, how do you regulate that? And that already is a pretty tough question for in-person tournaments. So the TOC had to deal with that. Like, what do you do about uh, online judging where there's theoretically less accountability? And it seems like the TOC's solution was to use the Zoom classroom model, which is basically like when pairings go out, you go to a Zoom room um, and, uh, and that Zoom room will eventually get checked in by someone from tab room every so often. Now, I, I have my own complaints about the Zoom classroom model that they used, uh, not least of which is the fact that it looked fairly expensive uh, for virtually no reason. Zoom is a free conferencing platform to run on. Uh, but also because it didn't actually solve the supervision issue, I think, in the way that they wanted them to. And I think that other models, like ones that use Zoom room managers, would actually be preferable in that sense. So a Zoom room manager seems is very similar to the classroom in the sense that when you get the pairing, you'll be told to go to a specific Zoom room. But rather than it being sort of an unmonitored classroom, it's a room that is run by a supervised, like it is supervised by an adult uh, designated by the tournament. Um, so it could be like someone on that college debate team. It could be another coach. It could be something like that. And that person will then assign you using the education function breakout rooms and you'll be put into a breakout room. So like LD, you know, uh, round one, flight A, uh, this round will go in breakout room one, two, three, four, five, six, you know, whatever room you're in. And then that Zoom room manager will just constantly rotate through all of the rooms to check in on things to make sure that there's no problems. And that is both cheaper, uh, because it doesn't require any money to run, uh, than the classroom model, but also seems like it solves a lot of the in-person, like online supervision issues a lot better than the TOC's model. So I actually think that the TOC was, it was good that they experimented with this model, but I actually think that the Zoom room model, uh, Zoom room manager model is, is better for tournaments in the future, especially those sanctioned by schools. Do you think that's true even at large numbers? So like NSDA is coming up, that will have hundreds of kids as opposed to 60 some kids at Rinaldi at TOC this year. Is something like you described feasible at that size? Would you have to like break it up into, you know, 10 rooms and have 10 adults monitoring them and doing the breakouts? How do you think you would do that? Well, it seems like in-person tournaments also loosely require this. Like NSDA has like people that are assigned to just like basically roam the halls, at, uh, if I recall yeah. correctly. And it doesn't seem like it would require much larger quantities of people working the online rooms relative to the in-person tournament that exists. And it'd be a lot easier to get them to do it because uh, you wouldn't have to fly all of them out to wherever New Mexico it was going to be this year. Um, so I don't really find that 
particularly concerning. I, I guess it could be something that we need to care about. But I remember like my sophomore year out of uh, uh, in college, like my job was to functionally serve as the supervisor for World Schools Debate. Like my job was to like patrol the like elevators and the common spaces and you know check up on things. Uh, same thing would occur here, I think, in the online world. There's one other thing that I want to return to concerning the ETOC this year, more so than last year, although this might be indicative of a general trend, which is speaker points. So I think we've all heard threats of point inflation and whatnot. And some of us have thought, no link, it's not really happening. Other of us have thought, no impact, who really cares about speaks inflation? But I think this ETOC might be the most salient example of just rampant speaks inflation. Now, I didn't do the math on this, but I think Tice did. And I think these numbers are ridiculous in just how much speaks have been inflated. I, I don't remember what the numbers are. Do you, do you have those? Yeah, I think in terms of total points, Top speaker averaged 29.3. Last place speaker, well, there's one outlier who I don't think we should include because they got a one in a debate and are like 20 points lower than anybody else in total points. But putting that person aside, the gap was between 29.3 at the top and 27.7 at the bottom. Right, which to me seems like a, a really low gap um, between top and bottom speaker. Uh, like really low. What does that what does that work out to? Like less than a point difference? It's like a point and a half. Point and a half difference. Yeah, that's just like not a lot um, of difference between supposedly the top speaker at this tournament, um, who is consistently giving above 29s and like the last seated debater at this tournament. I don't know that that speaks inflation to me. I used to not care too much about it. But I I feel like this tournament kind of set things uh, in perspective. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't matter so much um here because everyone with a winning record breaks but at glenbrooks for example i think it took like a 29-1 or 29-2 maybe to break and that seems absurd i think that the numbers are actually even more stark than that let's because there is if you look at like the very top few or the very bottom few, there's often a few that are just like a, a, like a half point above anyone else or half point below anyone else if you scale it back and just say like the fifth from bottom speaker compared to the fifth from top speaker, like to be in the bottom 10 percentile compared to like the top 10 percentile, you're actually looking at less than one point per round on average. Uh, so one full speaker point can determine the difference between bottom 10% and top 10%, which just seems maybe it's been like that for a while. It, it just seems like the, the speaks were very tightly clustered at the TOC. It's been, it's been this way for a while. I think this is particularly stark, but it's been a problem for a while. I wrote about it um as a problem way back um when was when was the last time i wrote an article about this let's see i don't know 2015 january 2015 i wrote an article about this so it's been a problem for quite a long time but it's getting more stark and it doesn't it, it has a big impact not just on breaks at certain tournaments like Glenbrooks, but also seating and brackets throughout the entire tournament it has a pretty big effect on the strength of your opponent in a bubble round for example and it just seems completely absurd that we're structuring our tournaments around this metric. Yeah, and and I think the effects are particularly wide, like wide-reaching. I was listening to a podcast, uh, that an education podcast, which was interviewing a debate coach, Yayao Chen, um, and I'll link that in the description below. It's a really good interview. The bonus episode is a discussion about judge preps and how do you deal with judge preps in a, in a world of speaks inflation. Now, this is in the context of policy debate. Speaks inflation is not quite as rampant as it is in LD. Nonetheless, that's one of the problems because a serious consideration you have to do when you're doing your preferences are, do I want a first year judge that is likely to give me higher speaker points because they tend to be the ones that are at the forefront of points inflation that is you know, arguably of worse quality in giving their decision? Or would I prefer a more experienced judge, one with a se- several years out of the activity who is going to give a better decision, but overall going to give lower speaker points? And you have to make that consideration because with some of your teams that are on the verge of breaking or not breaking, and these speaker points being the difference between breaking and not breaking, you might sometimes pick overall a worse judge for your team, risking the loss or at least a bad decision just for those guaranteed higher speaker points to put you into el- elimination rounds. And that just seems like one of the things that you shouldn't have to seriously consider when thinking about debate. Like I get preps are a strategy, although I have my own thoughts about preps and why they may not be so great, but it's weird that you have to spend so much time worrying about this. Yeah, my answer is pretty simple, which is I think that those judges, and I think you're right that it's probably more so than average, you know, young judges are, they're just doing something wrong. Like you are not fulfilling your responsibility as a judge if you are not even making an attempt to 
correlate your speaks to the actual distribution of speaker points in the tournament. If you're handing out 29 fives and up like candy because you want people to pref you or you're not confident in your abilities or you just sort of like want to make the debaters in your round happy, you're doing a disservice to every other student in that tournament, right? Speaker points are entirely a zero-sum game, right? The only benefit of getting speaker points is how many points you have relative to the other people in the pool. And so whenever you artificially inflate one student speaks, you're hurting every other student who didn't get you as a judge. And obviously, if everyone does that, then you end up having this sort of problem of just, well, it loses its point. And so any judge who is giving out artificially high speaks or not doing the due diligence to make sure that their speaker point scale is roughly in line with the tournament is basically cheating out everyone who everyone else in the pool who doesn't have the luxury to get a judge who's just going to give them like a, a free 30. And I always try to check like after a tournament, I'll go back and look and see how my speaker points, you know, scaled relative to other people who judge similar debaters and see whether I'm just drastically out of line. And I feel like my speaker points generally tend to be somewhere around the average. But if you find that you're just consistently giving way above average speaks and don't have a, a plausible unbiased explanation for why that's the case, like you're just only judging late Elam debaters in your prelim rounds, then I would suggest that if you're that sort of judge, you should probably really reconsider what your average speaker points are and whether it's really fair that a student who is getting 28.5s on average from other judges gets a 29.5 from you, which gives them an artificial lug up against all the other 28.5 debaters come potential like 4-2 screws for Elam participation. I mean, I agree with the sentiment, although I will step back a bit and say that the solution isn't super obvious because... Uh, you know, at the TOC, it might be kind of obvious, skill down your speaker points. But there are tournaments that that might not be an easy solution. So the most obvious example I can give is the UT Austin tournament. And it is a giant tournament. It's like one of the largest tournaments uh, of the year in, in Texas, even though it's only semis been in LD. And the pool is huge. It breaks the triple octafinals. And it has a huge mix of local debaters who bring their local judges and then TOC bidded debaters who are looking to get one of those four coveted bids. And so when I go judge that tournament, I'm faced with a dilemma, which is I know that the average speaker points are very high because a lot of the less circuit friendly judges give only in half points and they tend to give very high. So they tend to give 28 fives, 29s, 29 fives and above because they're not super familiar with the 20 to 30 speaker point scale. And I know that if someone wants me, who I am willing to say is more qualified than the average judge in that pool, who a lot of which consists of parents or local speech and debate judges, they know that their speaker points are going to be lower in front of me. Like I'm probably going to give a 28, two or three for the same performance that a parent might give a 29, five, four, because the top speaker of that tournament usually gets like four thirties and a 29, five, right. Or like a 29, nine, something absurdly high. And so then like, I have to ask myself, am I doing a disservice? Because if I, if I give my speaks too low relative to that tournament, am I actually hurting debaters who are now losing out on opportunities to get judges that they want to prep? merely because I, they know that if they prep me, they're just simply not going to be higher seated. And I, I think that it makes it a little bit harder to just sort of blanket recommend that everyone adjust their speaks relative to the tournament, because sometimes it's hard to know where that, that average speak is. It might be really high at some tournaments, might be really low, and might be very varied at some of the larger tournaments. Yeah, that's why in general, I think the solution here, unfortunately, probably has to be a structural one that changes how tournaments use speaker points or you know modifies incentives for judges in some way. Because I think otherwise you've run into exactly the problem Lawrence pointed out. Either you, know, you put judges in a position where they sort of feel they have to give good speaker points or judges just sort of don't consider all of the factors and only see the two debaters in front of them and wanting to make them happy. And that just is always going to create upward pressure on speaker points. And as expectations get reset, that just keeps going up and up and up. Uh, so I think the change probably has to be structural. Um, I have some particular thoughts on this, but it's not worth getting into probably right now. I think there's some degree of inevitability, obviously, when you have tournaments that represent a number of different circuits. And like, you can't resolve all of that. But like we were just discussing the TOC, where I know for a fact, you can look at a few of the judges and you'll see just gratuitous points inflation. It cannot be plausibly explained as just like, I don't want to hurt the, the large number of local circuit debaters in the pool. And even other tournaments, like I remember looking at an Octa's bid tournament from last year and seeing at least one judge who was giving out, like they had like six thirties over the course of just prelims and then like a, a handful of other 28, 29, seven, their average is probably like 29, five. Uh, and there's just no way that that judge who definitely judges the national circuit a lot 
could plausibly justify that as I was doing my best to give speaks in line with the pool. And right. a lot of the, like the, the, the speaker points, like the most relevant aspect is going to be who's breaking, right? So it's, it's less relevant who's judging, you know, the, the two, three bracket between two small school debaters who are just attending for like the Emory term or something for the first time and aren't continuing to break. It's very relevant who's judging like the, the four one round and giving out thirties and 29 and eights and stuff just for the, for the sake of it. And so definitely the judges who are in those rounds are not just those local judges who just don't know any better and don't know the scale. There's definitely a decent portion of people who are giving very inflated speaker points and contributing to that problem. The, the worst example of people like this are the folks who put random little tasks for debaters in their paradigms that will lead to 30s or increased points. Any judge who does that should not count towards a judging commitment. They should not be allowed to judge at tournaments at yeah. all. Yeah, you should like the bring me food and I'll give you plus 0.5 speaker points. I feel yeah. like it's pretty hard to justify. You should get the, the boot immediately. I, but I think independent of the solution, I think it's pretty obvious that the ETOC in particular is emblematic of a larger problem of points inflation that like ha something has to be done about. Like if this isn't evidence of rampant points inflation, like I just don't know what could constitute that other than if the differential between top and bottom speaker was like 0.3 or something like that. But it, it I didn't realize how bad it was until uh, YouTube pointed it out to me and he was like, look through the speaker points, look at how low this difference is. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is really, really bad. Um, all right, before we wrap up the section, one thing I do want to mention is uh, congrats, Tice. I believe your student won the TOC. Uh, I feel like we should have mentioned this at the beginning, but we didn't, which is great. And I believe the kid that you coached, Nails, made it to quarters, which is pretty awesome as well. Oh, thanks, Lawrence. All right, when we come back from this, uh, we'll do a conclusion. Well, that's our episode for this week. We hope you found it informative and interesting and liked listening to us kind of ramble on about various topics, some of which only loosely related to the ETOC. Uh, but we're still really excited to see where this podcast can go in the future, and we look forward to hearing from you. So one thing we're going to do in future episodes is have a mailbag segment where we answer questions from you all, the audience. We actually have a few submissions already, and we'll be using those for future episodes shortly. Um, so we hope that you submit your episode suggestions, mailbag questions, or feedback with us at the form that's linked below. Thanks again to Victory Briefs for sponsoring this episode. Now, in order to distract us now that the circuit postseason is kind of over with the conclusion of the TOC, uh, I guess now is as good a time as any to take our mind off of what's happening outside, or I guess what's not happening outside, because literally none of us are outside. And I believe Nails has both a recommendation as well as his thoughts about this that he's willing to share with you all. Yeah, so I was just going to talk about the most recent Pixar movie and how I think it stacks up. So I, I just recently watched Onward. And objectively speaking, I think I, I would rank it pretty highly as a movie. It's quality in the same sort of way Pixar movies are in general quality. Uh, as far as it stacks up against other Pixar movies, I feel like Onward, I would say, is roughly middle of the pack. I don't think it's A tier, like Finding Nemo, Coco, or The Incredibles. It's not really B tier either, like Incredibles 2, Ratatouille, and Up. But I would say it's probably like solidly towards the top of the C tier, you know, your your Bugs Lifes, your Braves, your Monsters, Inks, and definitely well above like Cars 2, Finding Dory, et cetera. Uh, so if you haven't already, I would definitely say it. Like if you like Pixar movies, I'd say Onward is definitely worth watching. Um, you made it sound like I had a lot more to say about that than I did. Let's just quantify this. Let's quantify this. What okay. would you say it's VARP is? Value above replacement Pixar. Oof. How, numerically? I don't, numerically. I don't, I don't know. Having, like, if I listed all of the Pixar movies ordinarily, which I'm saying kind of factually, but I have done that. So factually, if I were to list it, I put it slightly above average. It is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. I have it 9th out of 20 on my list. Wow. Dead center. Although, uh, what is it? To be fair, I, I, uh, what is it? What is it sandwiched between? A bug's Life and Cars. Okay. I, I will say, if we got into the details of, the list, of this list, that would also involve a lot more hot takes. So I would, I would well, uh, probably not. What's, what do you think, what's your most counterintuitive ranking? Yeah, what's, what's the hottest take? I have Cars ranked above any Toy Story movie. That is, that is very hot take. I will say I've not seen Toy Story 4. So it could be that that one blows the rest out of the water. I can't comment on that one. That's one of the only two Pixar movies I still haven't seen, along with The Good Dinosaur. But 
I thought Cars was actually a pretty solid middle tier movie, and I'm just sort of unenthused with Toy Story 1 through 3. I think they're forgettable. Uh, so I, I will defend that Cars 1 beats any of the Toy Story movies. Cars 2 and Cars 3 less so. Uh, without getting into, like, too much of your criteria for ranking movies, okay. how seriously do you weight, like, breakthrough technology? So, like, Toy Story was cool, not necessarily because it had a great story, although I, I'm willing to defend that it, it, it does have one, but mostly because it was breakthrough in terms of how animation worked. And, like, that was the reason for why there was so much hype around it. I'm not, I'm not a deep man. It's just how much did I enjoy watching the movie? <laughs> I'm not a deep man, so the one who like ranks or annoy his favorite Pixar movies <laughs> top down. That doesn't suggest any degree of depth. I, I can be interested in ranking things on entirely superficial qualities. My propensity to rank things does not suggest that I enjoy the deeper meaning behind them or the technological intricacies therein. Okay, fair enough. I, I guess that would explain a lot about you. Well, uh, <laughs> there you have it. A like somewhat lukewarm recommendation to watch Onward. I will say I've watched it with my family. It's pretty good. So I'd say go ahead and give it a watch. Honestly, what else do you have to lose? It's Yeah, lukewarm amongst Pixar is still very good. That's, that's fair. Even my mom liked it, which I can say is high recommendation because she's not a big movie person. So I, I will give it a stronger than lukewarm recommendation, even amongst Pixar movies. Anyways, that's our episode for this week. Hope to see you next time.